This morning we continue our series in the Minor Prophets, and this week is Nahum, or as I've been told it should be pronounced, Nahum, but I'm not going to say that, I shall continue with the English Nahum, because I'm not going to ruin my throat as I preach this morning. (laughs) Say it with me, Nahum. (laughs) Well, a few of you are there anyway. (laughs) Now, the reality is Nahum isn't a bundle of laughs. Not too much fun in this one. So if you came for a giggle this morning, there's not going to be too much entertainment in the sermon. Um, but we're going to look at this, this character, Nahum, Nahum. And his name means comfort. But there's not much comfort in the book of Nineveh, uh, in, the book, in the book for Nineveh that Nahum has been sent to preach to. This city which he had been sent to prophesy against. However, this... What he prophesies does bring some comfort to Judah, who had been oppressed by the Ninevites, the Assyrians, for many years. And will you just excuse me, it's rather warm in here and I'm going to take my jumper off. If you want to do the same, feel free. So the Judans have been oppressed by the Assyrians and the Assyrians' capital was Nineveh. And this character, Nahum, was sent to prophesy to Nineveh. And you'll remember something of um, the uh, oppression of the Assyrians. If you read through Kings, um, you can at least read of the, um, uh, the siege of Samaria, where the uh, Assyrians gathered around Samaria and they were doing things like selling donkeys' heads and things to eat to each, each other and some were eating their own children. You remember that siege? That was by the Assyrians. You also remember the siege of Jerusalem when Hezekiah was king. And Sennacherib came up and they were almost at at their wit's end as to how they were going to live. And then uh, suddenly God went out and defeated, destroyed many of the Assyrian army, 185,000, and they fled. So, but but it continued as a pattern. And these um, Assyrians had continued to oppress the whole area, the whole region. They were the world power. But Nahum was sent into the heart of this world power to preach a message that their time had come to an end. And that was a message for comfort for all of their enemies. What's bad news for Assyria is good news for all who have been oppressed by them. Now in 1 verse 1, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. It's not clear exactly where this is, where Elkosh is. But it's probably Alkosh, which is near Mosul in northern Iraq. Because actually if you go there today, you can find the tomb of Nahum. So there's a good chance that that's where he was from. Well, that's if ISIS haven't blown it up, at least. So his tomb can be found there, and it's even honoured by Arabs even to this day. And that makes him one of the northern Israelites who were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. So it's not surprising that he rejoices over their demise. Also, the town of Capernaum is named after him. Kapur means village. Nahum village of Nahum. So that New Testament um, name, that village that we're so familiar with from, with from the New Testament, has got an association with Nahum somehow. He also lived at the same time as three other prophets, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Jeremiah. Now Habakkuk we've already looked at. Jeremiah um, we're not planning to look at in this series because it's 50 odd chapters rather than three chapters. And um, Zephaniah we will look at in the weeks to come. 
So we have this prophet. He's from the northern tribe somewhere. He's been living in Iraq. um, And he's sent to Nineveh to go and prophesy against the city and against the Assyrians. So like Jonah, as we looked at last week, Nahum was sent to Nineveh, the major world power of the time. Now, when Jonah went, his message was was one of judgment that provoked repentance. He said, you've got chance to repent. You've got chance to come back to God. That was when Jonah went there. But when Nahum uh, went, it wasn't the same message. It was one of imminent destruction. There was an opportunity. There was no opportunity in Nahum's message for repentance. Basically, it was a message that was saying to Nineveh, your time is up. You've been given every chance to repent. You've been given every chance to come back to God. Now the time is up. Judgment is now coming upon you. Now following Jonah's message 150 years earlier, Assyria had continued its expansion, taking over Egypt, taking over the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity. And Nahum was prophesying not long before 612 BC, when Nineveh was actually destroyed. And he told them that their time had now run out. In 150 years earlier, in response to Jonah's prophecies, they'd repented, but had soon slipped back into their cruel and barbarous ways. You remember if you were here last week, I told, them, told you that the kind of things they would do is when they captured the enemy, they would take a few thousand of them and pierce them on spikes until they died and that kind of thing. They were... A nice bunch of people to, to know, really. Um, and they'd continued with this cruel and barbarous activity. And despite the fact that God is slow to anger, their time was up. The judgment promised by both Jonah and Nahum, and Zephaniah for that matter, was about to come upon them. And God tells them quite clearly in the last verse of this book, if you turn to the last verse, it says... There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable or nothing can heal you. In other words, no chance now. Your time is done. You've had every opportunity to come back to me. Now it's it's over. Judgment is coming upon you. Nothing can heal you. There's no way out this time. But in this book, there is also a sense of good news. For example, in chapter 1, verse 15... Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. You remember, that's also quoted in Isaiah. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. There is a promise of restoration for Israel. Now, even despite that promise, this was five years before the rest of Israel, Jerusalem itself, went into captivity. But there's no hint of their captivity in in the book of Nahum. But there is hope hope or hint of their restoration later on. Now the book splits down into three parts. As you read through it, it's in three chapters and they align with the three parts of this book. The first part is the who. Who. Disaster for, for Assyria. God is naming who he's bringing disaster on. And deliverance for Israel and others. In the second part, we have the how. How, as Nahum describes, the destruction that will come upon Assyria. In the third part, we have the why, as Nahum recalls the violence, cruelty and witchcraft of the Assyrians that has led to their judgment. So it's who, how and why. And so it it makes it very clear as to why this judgment is coming upon them and how it will come. Chapter 1 is also an acrostic. What's an acrostic? 
Go on. That's right, exactly. An acrostic is where you take the letters of an alphabet, and particularly this will be the, the Hebrew alphabet, and each verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, it doesn't complete the whole alphabet, but it is an acrostic, and that's how it's been structured in that first chapter of Nahum. Each verse starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It also alternates between its thoughts between bad news for Assyria, good news for Israel. And in this first chapter, is quite simply the, the proclamation that Nineveh will fall. Verse 14, the Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. That's God's declaration over Nineveh. In chapter 2, it contains incredible detail about the fall of Nineveh. We could go through that in a lot of detail, how it maps out exactly to the prophecy here. Um, even before it happened. The language of the prophecy is vivid and lively. He even describes the colour of the uniforms of the soldiers who would destroy it. In chapter 2, verse 3. The shields of his mighty men are coloured red. The warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel. All very detailed. And it actually is the colour of the Babylonian army was red. The army that came and destroyed Nineveh. So it's even prophesied what colour the uniforms would be. And Nahum also describes Assyria as a lion. Drop down to chapter 2 and verse 11. Where is the den of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion, lioness and lion's cub prowled with nothing to disturb them. The lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lionesses, and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. The Syria... The Assyrian symbol was a lion. And the Nahum is using that very symbol to say, the lion that has destroyed many and brought back enough food for its own children into its own lair and for its lionesses, that lion is now going to be terrified and be in fear because judgment is coming upon it. So he's using everything. It's all very pictorial language to, to demonstrate what was going to happen to Nineveh. They had behaved as a lion themselves, killing their prey, but now they were the ones who were going to be devoured. Then in chapter 3, God doesn't judge Assyria according to the Ten Commandments. He's not saying, you haven't lived up to the law, because they weren't a land, a nation in covenant with God. But rather, he judges them in terms of their crimes against humanity, their barbarous cruelty. And you see that in chapter 3, verses 1 following forward. God judges people by what they know, not by what they do not know. He judges people according to that which they should instinctively know to be right as humans, rather than by an external standard where they have no knowledge. In other words, if someone's never heard of Jesus, they will be judged, not be judged for rejecting him, but for rejecting the knowledge of the creator that is self-evident in the world around them. Paul says it specifically in Romans 9. Oh, sorry, Romans 1, that the evidence of creation around us says there's a creator. And if we reject that, we're rejecting all of God's goodness. And that's what we will be judged on if we've never heard of Jesus. So every judgment will be fair because the, the evidence is there right in front of our faces, if we will but see it and perceive it and open our minds to it. Now what happened to Nineveh after these prophecies of their destruction? 
Well, this is what Zephaniah prophesied in chapter 2, verse 13 to 15. He said this, He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. Flocks and herds will lie down. They're creatures of every kind. The desert owl and the screech owl will roost in her columns. Their hooting will echo through the windows. Rubble will fill the doorways. The beams of cedar will be exposed. This is the city of revelry that lived in safety. She said to herself, I'm the one, and there's none beside me. What a ruin she's become, a lair for wild beasts. All who pass by her scoff and shake their fists. Now, if you go there today, you'll find nothing but desert, inhabited by owls, with a few remains of the foundations of some of the buildings. God fulfilled this word exactly, just as he said. When he prophesied judgment and did it in such detail, it came just as he declared. Now they've excavated much of Nineveh and found it to be a great city. But all that's left is dust and foundations and a few cuneiform tablets. Nothing much else. It was com- the, the world power of the, of the age and yet its destruction was complete. And not over a long period of time, just in a few years. So the question that this book answers is this. Who controls history? Who controls history? God. That's the answer. That's what this book tells us. That's what the message of Nahum is. Who controls history? Is it the world powers? Is it the great dominators? Is it the politicians? Is it the money men? Who controls history? It's God. The book begins by reminding us of the power of Yahweh. Let's read that in verse 3 to 6. Well, we'll start at 2. Jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. He takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. But the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust of his, beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither, mountains quake before him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his, his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken, out, ro- broken up by him. But the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. You have that comparison of of the nature of God within those verses. Who can stand? The the mountains quake at him. The earth shakes when he's there. What he proclaims will come to pass. But he's slow to anger, and he's good. And we have to keep those two sides of his character in balance. Yes, he will judge. But yes, he's a good God and a loving God and one who gives every opportunity for people to come to repentance. With Assyria, it was 150 years that they had. That's slow by anyone's standards. They had every opportunity not to come under judgment. The Lord is good, a refuge in time of trouble. He cares for those who trust him. God has not rushed to carry out his judgment on Assyria. He first challenged them via Jonah. And now his patience has run out. And it's taken him 150 years to come to this decision. 
Why? Because the Lord always gives time for a response when he brings a word of judgment. He doesn't judge and then do it. He says, this is the potential of what might happen. But you've got every opportunity to come back to me and sort it out. He holds back his judgment to allow time for repentance and change. And I think we can all be grateful that the Lord is not quick to anger. Because each one of us must try his patience all the time. Anyone here not try the patience of the Lord any time? You with me? We all try his patience. And yet we're thankful that he's a good God. And he's slow to anger. And he holds back that which we deserve in order to sort it out. And to be reconciled and for us to get it right again. In chapter 2 verse 7. It says in this version, it is fixed, or it is decreed, Nineveh will be exiled and carried away. In other words, it's God who controls history. He's made the decision of what will happen. It's not that the Babylonians have made a decision that they would come and sack Nineveh. It's God who's made the decision, and it's he who will bring it about. It is decreed. It's God who controls history, and all things will ultimately be worked out according to his plan. Humanity may think it's in control of its own destiny, but ultimately it is God who will have his way on this earth. And Paul reflects this on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. He says this, verse 26, From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God is in control of history. We need not fear when we see bad things happening in the press and in the world because we know it's safe in his hands. We may not understand what's going on, but we can trust that God is a good God and he will work out all things according to his plan and according to his purpose. In other words, no empire has arisen that is beyond God's control to thwart. God can destroy an empire in a short time. How quickly did the British Empire dissolve? 1939, we owned a third of the world. 1947, we had just this country left. That's how quickly an empire can disappear. Won't go into why that happened, but that's that's for another another time. Perhaps a lecture sometime. Um, But an empire can disappear... In a very short time, just as the Assyrian Empire did, that went from world dominator to total destruction in a matter of a few years. You see, all of the arrogance of the rulers of the earth is built on a false premise that they have the power to control the world. They are wrong. God is in control of this world. Even though we don't always see it, we know that nothing is beyond his power to change. The history of the world has seen many powerful rulers arise and many dictators dominate and destroy. Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Alexander the Great, Caesar, Attila, Genghis Khan, Napoleon and Hitler. You knew I'd get Alexander in, didn't you? The list could go on. We can rest assured that each one of them will be judged, just as Assyria was judged. We may not see it in our lifetime. We may not see it at all. But God's judgment may, may not even be this side of the grave. 
but we can be sure that it will happen. Why? Because God is a God of justice. And we'll have justice in his created order. Nothing slips past his, his eyes. Nothing misses his attention. He will have justice in his earth. And he will bring the unjust to justice. And whether it's in this life or in the next, it will happen. And we can be assured of that. Paul tells us in Romans 13.1 that there's no authority except that which God has established. In other words, God allows leaders to come into place as his delegated authority on the earth. And their judgment will be based on whether they've ruled justly and righteously. Or whether their rule has been, been typified by crimes against humanity. And none of them will get away with it. Not Obama, Cameron, Merkel, Putin or anyone else. They will all be called to account for the way they have led. Whether they believe in God or not. This also includes the leaders of ISIS. That evil um, bunch of people one day will be brought to justice for the actions that they've taken. Even if we don't see it in our lives, we can rest assured that God will bring about justice for every child of his who has suffered. And for every other oppressive regime too. And this should bring us some comfort. That's what Nahum's name means, comfort. Because whilst we see injustice everywhere in the world, and we should do everything in our power to stand against it, Yet we know that justice is beyond our ability to achieve in every circumstance. Eli Weissel said, There may be times when we are powerless to prevent injustice, but there must never be a time when we fail to protest. We may be powerless to prevent injustice, but there must never be a time when we fail to protest. In other words, we speak out against injustice. We may not be able to bring about justice, but we highlight it. However, we can know that even if we don't, ex- don't succeed, even if the unrighteous still prevail, even if the innocent still suffer, none of these leaders will get away with it forever. And God will have justice in this world. And it's also a comfort that we can look forward to the day when God sorts out all injustice. Because when his son returns to the earth... And that's coming soon. He will deal with the mess. He will sort out all injustice. He will bring judgment on the nations. And he will set up his righteous and his perfect kingdom. And that again should bring us comfort. That we know that our future and our destiny is sealed. Not in a world that continues in this pattern of injustice and oppression. But in a world that will be um, trained and shaped around his ideal and around all that he has established through his kingdom. And I'm looking forward to being in that world. Of seeing Jesus ruling. And of seeing all things sorted out. And the oppressors dealt with. Not because I want vengeance. But because I want justice. And to live in a just and righteous world. And that's our destiny. Brothers and sisters. That's our destiny. So this book isn't a bundle of laughs. But it does give us some very good strong perspective then actually, God won't let injustice and oppression continue forever. And this week, we've considered the big picture of world events and God's hand in them. Because that's where the book of Nahum has led us. I could have preached on almost anything, but I try and stick to what's in the text. Because actually, that's what I believe God has called me to do, is teach the Bible 
as it is, not add anything to it. But, but that's where Nahum has led us. However, there is a personal application that we can also consider out of this book. Each one of us may have suffered injustice in some form. It may be bullying at school or in the workplace. It may have been having been treated unfairly by your boss or even your spouse or friends. It may be as a result of the system which is stacked against you. We all encounter injustice in some form as we move through life. And the question for each one of us is how we will react as a result of it. Our first response will probably be anger. And that's understandable. But we can't stay in anger. Or else it will turn to bitterness and frustration. Particularly if we can do nothing to address the injustice that's come against us. At such times, there is only one response that will bring wholeness to us. And that's to forgive. That doesn't mean we let the other party off the hook. But we release ourselves from the prison of bitterness and from resentment and anger, which will destroy us and do nothing to affect the other person. It may be that we can take action to address the wrong, but that's always best taken from a position of peace and not of anger. It may be that we can do nothing to bring justice to ourselves, but we can rest in the assurance that when we forgive, we cease trying to get our own back and leave justice to God. Knowing that he will bring about justice for every wrong committed. You see, brothers and sisters, unforgiveness is a luxury that none of us can afford. And my request, command, whatever, to you this morning is deal with it. If you're holding on to unforgiveness... If you're feeling that you've been dealt unjustly, deal with it. For you're the one in the prison. You're the one who is trapped. You're the one who will be held back. You're the one who keeps that oppression upon you. If you forgive, you release it and you release yourself into the grace and the peace of God. It may be that we can do nothing to bring justice for ourselves, but God will bring that comfort that he will ultimately bring justice for every wrong committed. It's not a one-off action. It's a process. It starts with the decision of the will and it ends in freedom. And you know when you've got there, when you can pray for and bless the one who's treated you unjustly and unfairly, that's the sign that you've forgiven. So take time to deal with anger, bitterness, unforgiveness rest in the peace of God and trust him with the outcome he will not fail you and if you need any prayer to help with that please see the prayer team afterwards